You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Sectarian Review Podcast, a proud member of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. We discuss culture, history, art, politics, and religion in order to better understand the systems and institutions that cloud our vision of this life. Keep up with the conversation and add to it by liking our Facebook page, following us on Twitter, and visiting our website at sectarianreviewpodcast.com. Also, if you like the show, don't forget to leave a nice rating and review at iTunes. And if you ever get the urge to join in for an episode or two, contact us with your ideas. Listeners make the best contributors. Now for the show. Hi everybody, Danny here. Thanks for downloading another episode of the Sectarian Review Podcast. I want to prepare you for today just a little bit before we uh, get into the show. As many of you know, if you've listened to the show long enough, I teach English at a a small college in Pennsylvania called Mount Aloysius College. And recently I had the, the great pleasure of presenting at a conference with two of my colleagues, Christopher Burlingame and Jessica Jost Costanzo. And I wanted, I thought it was a good opportunity to perhaps share a little bit of a little insight into a small part of the academic world. Uh, we were on a, a panel at the Pennsylvania College English Association, recently held at Indiana University of Pennsylvania. And our panel was called Behind the Bullet Holes. And it was about teaching violent graphic novels and the possible pedagogical value of doing so. And it occurred to me as I was preparing that nice little speech uh, that the panel as a whole is just kind of a little window into a piece of academia that you may not um, ever get a chance to see. You may not want to see uh, after listening to this, but uh, I thought it would be an interesting little sidebar for our uh, our show. And so I wanted to share it with you with uh, Chris's and Jess's permission, of course. I thank them for allowing me to record us and to, uh, to share it with you. I hope you enjoy the show. If you have any questions about what you hear, please, as always, feel free to contact uh, me or the show via our Facebook page or at the website. You can leave comments uh, right there at, at the sectarianreviewpodcast.com website. So please uh, take a listen to Behind the Bullet Holes. Welcome. Thank you. Um, this is actually a, a really nice turnout <laughs> for <laughs> a fairly early morning uh, panel. Um, we, uh, my name is Danny Anderson. I am an assistant professor of English at Mount Aloysius College, um, and I'll let my colleagues introduce themselves. I'm Chris Burlingame. I'm a writing consultant and study skills specialist at Mount Aloysius College, and I teach a few classes, um, and I'm also um, a PhD candidate here at, at IUP in, in the Summers Only program. And I am Jessica Jose Costanzo, Associate Professor of English at Mount Aloysius College as well. And um, I teach uh, some courses in the area of uh, the graphic novel, and uh, I'm also an 18th century Brit lit person. Um, And our panel is basically, I think, more in the confessional tone, uh, in the mode of uh, the confessional, more than... uh, analytic academic study here. Um, But we're talking generally about trigger warning, safe spaces, and the role that graphic literature plays in that conversation. Um, And I'm going to read my paper first, and then 
uh, I believe Chris, Chris will go. Um, but before I start, I actually want to read an excerpt of a poem called Behaving Like a Jew by Gerald Stern, who's a, a Pittsburgh poet. Uh, when I got there, the dead opossum looked like an enormous baby sleeping on the road. It took me only a few seconds, just seeing him there with the hole in his back and the wind blowing through his hair, to get back again into my animal sorrow. I am sick of the country, the blood-stained bumpers, the stiff hairs sticking out of the grills, the slimy highways, the heavy birds refusing to move. I am sick of the spirit of Lindbergh over everything. That joy in death, that philosophical understanding of carnage, that concentration on the, on the species. I am going to be unappeased at the opossum's death. I am going to behave like a Jew. This is a, uh, the beginning of that poem, but I feel like it's a nice connection to some of my anxieties that I, I deal with in my paper here, so, uh, which is uh, provisionally called On the Teaching of Violent Literature. This panel discussion is an attempt at responding to ongoing controversies over trigger warnings, safe spaces, microaggressions, and other fronts in the battle of political correctness in higher education. Predictably, the lines in this battle are usually drawn along partisan lines. Political conservatives will associate the interests of PC culture with groupthink and a creeping infringement upon individual freedoms and of speech and action. Conversely, politically liberal commentators will maintain that political correctness and its subsidiary terms are merely inclusive approaches to speech and thought with the ultimate goal of kindness and compassion for society's marginalized citizens. In the classroom, the primary site of this ideological conflict is the syllabus. Uh, questions as to whether faculty should, either by choice or decree, warn students in advance about objectionable, offensive, or sensitive content intersect with professional concerns about academic freedom, worries over institutional reputation, and cultural feels, fears about inclusivity and community. This is a big subject, in other words. Uh, rather than taking a position about the appropriateness of trigger warning, either in, the, in concept or implementation, I'm going to divert the conversation to a philosophical discussion about A, what we hope to achieve by incorporating transgressive material into academic endeavors, and B, the potential cost of this activity. The poem Behaving Like a Jew by Pittsburgh's own Gerald Stern that I just quoted from captures the emotional essence of the discussion I'm about to undertake. The speaker of that poem, in choosing to, quote, behave like a Jew, utterly rejects modern and sophisticated patterns of thought that intellectualize, quote, carnage. His is an attempt to maintain the ability to mourn death and destruction about, without the mediation of academic practice and method. So desperate is the speaker for this connection to humanity, he extends his mourning to an opossum dead in the road. And I want to organize my little experiment uh, around my own experience teaching Alan Moore and Eddie Campbell's graphic novel, From Hell. Slide one is up, I think. Um, the book is a fictionalized account of Jack the Ripper, of the Jack the Ripper murders in Victorian London, and Moore works diligently to capture the full horror of the crimes. The story is staged as an unfolding conspiracy set into motion by Queen Victoria herself, who enlists uh, royal surgeon Sir William Gull uh, to fulfill his Masonic duty to queen and country and eliminate a group of prostitutes who have a knowledge of an illegitimate heir to the throne of England. Gall approaches uh, his work with a religious zeal, heavily employing Masonic symbolism 
in the killings as a kind of rite of purification. As an object of academic inquiry, From Hell is a Gold Mine, uh, <laughs> encouraging uh, enlightened conversation about monarchy as a political system, patriarchy as an ideology, the roots of fascism, the aestheticization of violence, modernism, postmodernism, etc. <laughs> In addition, as an English teacher, uh, the novel has deep intertextual relationships with William Blake and other uh, literary figures. In short, uh, as a teacher of English at an American college in the 21st century, From Hell is a wonderful text that supports the intellectual mission of my profession. And yet, <laughs> Moore, as he is fond of doing, performs an act of deconstruction in the novel, where Watchmen explicitly attack the latent fascism of the superhero comic. From Hell works to rip, if you will, the uh, uh, Whitechapel murders from the realm of lurid fascination in pop, pop culture. Moore's explicit aim is to rehumanize the victims of the crimes and make the reader of From Hell confront the human tragedy of their murders. Ethically speaking, then, Moore's intent echoes Stern's call to behave like a Jew. Incidentally, uh, Moore and Campbell open up their work with an image that parallels uh, Stern's opossum, a dead seagull, sets the stage for the ensuing, quote, melodrama. Now, I must confess, uh, despite the fitness of the novel's intellectual and moral work, I never overcame a persistent uneasiness with teaching the novel to a group of undergraduates. In addition to images of pornographically explicit sex, The novel makes its moral claims with cruel and methodical images of the violence perpetrated on these women's bodies. The murder of Mary Kelly, the Ripper's last canonical victim, is particularly grotesque. Uh, staged over several pages of wordless panels, the murder victim becomes a showpiece for the Ripper's artistic ritual, uh, and his work is shown in excruciating detail. Frame after frame of silent images shows, uh, show Kelly's body being methodically disassembled, culminating in uh, an autopsy-like image of the final horror <coughs> itself. Just for effect, I want to leave that one up there for just a few seconds. Um, but uh, now, intellectually, I could and still can uh, explain the pedagogical value of approaching such moments in the, value, in the novel. As an English teacher, there's much close reading to be done and many connections to other moments in the novel to be made. Uh, some of the staging of the body, for example, we see predicted earlier on. Uh, historically speaking, the sequence opens up a space for a valuable discussion about Victorian medical practices. And even from an ethical perspective, there's good intellectual work to be done here. The brutality of Campbell's images suits Moore's accusatory purpose and forces the contemporary reader to confront his or her own participation in rape culture and other forms of violence against women. Simply by being fascinated by the persistent romance of the Ripper killings, we participate in the atrocities. I wonder, however, if something else is lost despite the intellectual progress made by applying these scholarly methods and practices to human tragedy. Is it the place of higher education to process such deeply human experiences? Slide seven. My thinking about such issues is no doubt in, deeply influenced by Lionel Trilling, one of the more prominent members of the so-called New York intellectuals who coalesced around such little magazines as Partisan Review. Trilling, who also taught at Columbia University, represents a bygone era in literary criticism, one which existed before the academic publishing industrial complex and <laughs> networks of conferences such as this one. Um, uh, maybe it is his very alienness 
to the modern academic uh, that makes his thoughts worth considering. In his 1961 essay on the teaching of modern literature, Trilling, who was incidentally like Gerald Stern Jewish, wrestles with anxieties similar to my own on these issues. The essay documents Trilling's uneasiness with teaching literature that we would today classify as modernist. Proust, Kafka, Gide, and others canonical modernists had been, by student demand, brought into Columbia's literature program for the first time, and Trilling found himself having to teach works that, in their very essence, quote, asks every question that is forbidden in polite society, end quote. And incidentally, can you just imagine living in a world where students would demand to read Kafka <laughs> through in class? Um, what problems we have. Um, without denying the value, quality, or importance of the work, Trilling nonetheless approached the task with trepidation. His complaint was not one of modern literature's quality, and this is also important for me to acknowledge here today, given that this is a conference about comics and academia. Like Trilling, I give full assent to the artistic, intellectual, and historical merit that comics bring to the classroom. And with regard to violent comics, I re reiterate that From Hell is a treasure trove for intellectual activity. Trilling's anxiety, and mine as well, is instead situated on the powers and limits of institutional education. In other words, the problem lies not with the course reading list, but with the class itself. The sex and violence of Moore and Campbell's book represents an assault on polite society's norms and morals. This is, of course, by explicit design. Moore's very intent is to present for the reader the horrifying truth of our society, like Dorian Gray's portrait, so that we must confront the structural realities of sexual, sexism and, and violence. Uh, in this intent, uh, it shares a great deal in common with modernist literature, which Trilling defines as, quote, the disenchantment of our culture with culture itself. It seems to me, Trilling, that the characteristic element of modern literature is the bitter line of hostility to civilization which runs through it. From Hell is, if anything, more hostile to our society than the works on Trilling's syllabus. It equates even office cubicle life with Jack the Ripper's killings, along with the crown, canonical Western literature, no critical stone is left unturned. Despite this claim, though, Trilling is an avid reader of this type of work. His reservations, as the title states, on the teaching of modern literature, uh, not on the reading of it. Uh, on one hand, the body of work in question seems to require a formal institutional setting in order to fully grapple with its depths. Confronting Joyce or Eliot without guidance in literary and historical context, the young reader will experience the vertigo and confusion that we all have. <laughs> Trilling acknowledges this, writing that, quote, modern literature, however, shows its difficulties at first blush. They are literal as well as doctrinal difficulties. Then echoing the call for covering this difficult work in the official curriculum, he asks, quote, if our students uh, were, to give, were to know their modern literary heritage, surely they needed all the help that a teacher can give, end quote. Well, the same logic uh, guided my decision to teach from hell. The intricate historical context and the postmodern intertextuality of the novel require a great deal of explanation and discussion to fully unpack, and one can imagine a solitary reader missing huge reservoirs of literary depth without such a conversation, without such guidance. Yet despite this conviction, the subversiveness of the book fires in me the same anxiety that inspired Trilling's essay particularly when coupled with the excitement students brought to discussions of the book. 
My students, like those who fought for modern literature to be added to Columbia's <laughs> curriculum in, in Trilling's time, were rather eager to uh, apply the techniques of academic literary criticism to the novel. The identification of motifs and repeated phallic images, the, which is full of, if you've never read that book, um, the philosophical discussions about patriarchy, Freudian psychology, and social control, these were on one level exhilarating uh, to be uh, witnessed by me as a professor, and I experienced no small amount of satisfaction in watching my students apply the critical lenses that the institution of higher education prizes and encourages. Trilling recounts similar experiences, albeit with far less pride than me, characterizing the process as, quote, the readiness of the students to engage in the process that we might call the socialization of the antisocial, or the acculturation of the anti-cultural, or the legitimization of the subversive, end quote. I'm taken aback even now reading that sentence. When I teach from hell, is the close textual analysis of graphic narratives that I prize being employed in the service of the legitimization of the subversive? If so, I fear I might not uh, be only undermining society itself, but also doing a disservice to the moral capabilities of the, subver of the subversive as well the subject of another paper, perhaps. Uh, perhaps I'm overquoting Trilling here, but his abilities with language far exceed my own, uh, so I will allow him to describe the problem. He writes, quote, to some of us who teach and who think in, of our students as the creators of the intellectual life of the future, there comes a kind of despair. It does not come because our students fail to respond to ideas, rather because, rather because they respond to ideas with a happy vagueness a delighted glibness, a joyous sense of power in the use of received or receive, receivable generalizations, a grateful wonder at how easy it is to formulate and judge, at how little resistance language offers to their intentions." End quote. In other words, Trilling students, and my own, were not sufficiently horrified by the literature we assigned. Uh, the fear underlying all of this can be stated quite simply. In our attempt to intellectualize our students through the power of our institution, are we robbing them of some degree, at least, of the ability to feel? By empowering young intellectuals with the technical academic tools of critical thinking, are we legitimizing subversion and stamping out a conscientious sense of terror? Is the university extending its power too far? Trilling asks, quote, whether in our day too much does not come within the purview of the academy. More and more as universities liberalize themselves and turn their beneficent imperialistic gaze upon what is life itself, the feeling grows more among our educated classes that little can be experienced unless it's validated by some established intellectual discipline, with the result that experience loses much of its personal immediacy for us and becomes part of an accredited societal activity." End quote. How happy would artists like Moore be knowing that we academics are here running his work through our academic machinery? <laughs> the end result of such mechanistic, imperialistic uh, intellectualisms in this, case, uh, in this case is that when I prepare, or excuse me, when I press for intellectual responses to From Hell from my students, as Trilling puts it again, uh, my students can never again know the force and terror of what's been communicated to him by the works he's being examined on, end quote. And in closing, I have one more quotation from our dear Lionel to share, uh, <laughs> if only because I personally find it rather funny. Um, allegorizing his anxiety 
about legitimizing the subversive, trilling parodies Nietzsche, writing, quote, I asked them to look into the abyss, and both dutifully, dutifully and gladly they have looked into the abyss, and the abyss has greeted them with the grave courtesy of all objects of serious study, saying, interesting, am I not? And exciting, <laughs> if you consider how deep I am and what dread beasts lie at my bottom. Have it well in mind that a knowledge of me contributes materially to your being whole and well-rounded men, uh, end quote. Well, now, whether or not this is funny to anyone but me, the, the point uh, about academic arrogance should be taken seriously. If we are to take Moore's artistic intention seriously to rehumanize the dehumanized women murdered by the monster we romantically call Jack the Ripper, it is worth considering whether our academic methods are another type of exploitation. When we look into the abyss that Moore and Campbell's book opens, how do we reconcile what the institution demands our students see and what their humanity demands they see? Now let me just say, uh, given the chance, I would teach from hell again. Trilling ends his essay by saying, I press the logic of the situation not in order to question the legitimacy of the commitment or even the propriety of, the propriety of expressing the commitment in the college classroom, but to confront those of us who do teach modern literature with the striking actuality of our enterprise. Like Trilling, I don't argue for self-censorship or truncated form of academic freedom. I simply wish to state that the works that have inspired these debates over trigger warnings should also inspire an honest awareness of the enterprise. My solution next time will be to apply a version of Gerald Graff's call to teach the controversy. Along with the formal and theoretical mechanisms of academic anal analysis, I will set aside time for this conversation and share my anxiety with this, my students. Perhaps then our academic form of the humanities may retain some of its humanity. Thank you. The abyss sounds like Yoda. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we're going to shift from, from hell to Fight Club 2, um, which, if you don't know, um, in 2016 came out first as Serial. Um, they released, I think it was 10 issues, and then they, they combined them, and in, in, I think it was July, they released them as, as the collected volume. Um, so my... my Loose title is Fight Club 2, Triggering Thinking or Critical Thinking About Violence with a Graphic Novel Sequel. So Chuck Palahniuk's foray back into the Fight Club universe actually wraps up with Palahniuk's own head being exploded like a watermelon when his, his most noteworthy character that he's ever created, Tyler Durden, assassinates him. Um, and we'll see an image of that in, in a little bit. But often this violence that is the physical manifestation of some kind of problem actually demands a further examination. And Fight Club, its film adaptation, and now this 2016 graphic novel sequel um, that have often been dismissed by some as being transgressive simply because they have explicit portrayals of violence. Um, others have adopted it as sort of this um, hyper-masculine manifesto of all that's wrong with American consumer culture. So the violence is very different in the, in the ways that we read and interpret it. So the characters in philosophical sound bites about anti-consumerism, the need to recover masculinity, and the rules of Fight Club have become so embedded, imitated, and parodied in popular, the popular cultural consciousness that many actually fail to tie these to the original source material. Um, and so in an interview, Palahniuk actually said, um, it's really what upsets people that stays in culture for a long time. It's the things that these people that, f uh, it's the things 
that please people that fade away instantly. So Palahniuk's world is worth revisiting in this graphic novel simply because it allows us to create an understanding of how physical violence has lent itself to establishing a history for the novel, for its characters, and for being a literary product that, um, according to Colado Rodriguez, that despite being fiction, encouraged the creation of a new factual reality. So by expanding the Fight Club mythos, the graphic novel sequel is actually able to present complex historical events in a narrative form that is detailed and multi-layered and has the potential for developing students what, what uh, Spencer Clark calls um, historical thinking skills, but that we more often would um, use the buzzword term critical thinking skills. So Jake Spencer Clark had this study um, where he used nonfiction graphic novels to help pre-service history teachers better conceptualize historical agency. Because Palnick's novel and film adaptation have become so ingrained in popular culture, those principles of historical agency can, that were established by Clark can then be applied to Palnick's graphic novel sequel um, in terms of historical thinking and agency so that students must think their way through the ways in which people choose to underact or act under different circumstances. Okay, So like historical agency that Clark described, graphic novels uh, in, in using them in the history classroom, violent texts especially like Fight Club have the cultural resonance that is uh, that need not be dismissed simply for the presence of violence alone, but should be studied to understand the motivation for that violence, what it means in being expressed, and um, what the consequences are uh, or the implications are. So Flight Club 2, which is as the subtitle The Tranquility Gambit, has the potential to expand and re-examine the characters and issue that necessitate, necessitate a move toward violence in Fight Clubs and Project Mayhem missions in the original novel, and how that violence and what it suggests has been so seamlessly absorbed and redeployed in popular culture. So. In the age of trigger warnings and safe spaces on college campuses that have been supported and bemoaned by, for the assumption that students are attempting to, quote, scrub campuses clean of words, ideas, and subjects that might cause discomfort or give offense, end quote, graphic novels like Fight Club 2 have much to offer in the classroom. Um, so in an interview uh, with MTV, Palnick also said, I wanted to be able to depict challenging, gruesome, edgy things without having them to make them as literal as they would have to be made in a movie, and that the artist, Cameron Stewart, um, his cartoony style gave Palahniuk the wiggle room so that he could tackle those complex issues without the reader becoming emotionally exhausted and closing the book. Mm -hmm. I think that that's a really important point about what can come from graphic literature um, as opposed to other violent sources of content. So especially for students who may be triggered by violence, graphic novels could be the ideal medium for them to access, discuss, and potentially work through these issues related to physical violence that could otherwise be too emotionally raw. Furthermore, Fight Club 2 would not only enable students to discuss how and why the violence is central to the story or is highly visible or drives the plot, but also how it relates to the history of the <coughs> franchise and how it can be used to identify and critique patterns of thought and social values that contribute to violence throughout history and contemporary society. 
So violent and transgressive texts hold this pedagogical value that should not be overlooked because it gives students the opportunity to consider violence as best understood, um, or I'm sorry, consider violence as beyond the physical, and that's best understood through this Van Zost and Bryant model that came out in 1995 that says violence exists on three levels, individual, institutional, and structural, cultural. And all of these appear both in the original Fight Club, the film adaptation, and now in Fight Club 2, the graphic novel. Too much of what seems to be an issue in these debates over trigger warnings and safe spaces and their impacts on student learning and academic freedom is who's responsible for providing them. Mandating that faculty provide student, students with warnings about challenging material suggests this transition, transmission model of education and with students being these passive receivers of information, and it sort of gets in the way of allowing for a discursive model that is more conducive to both historical and critical thinking. <laughs> so if the goal here is to promote critical thinking achieved through discussion and engagement, a useful solution might involve actually suggesting that students take some more initiative on their own to become familiar with the material and bring those concerns with them to class um, for a lively discussion. As faculty members, the job is to sort of guide students toward understanding their own agency in their education and also holding them more accountable for their role in their own learning. Um, and, and, and that allows for that practical application of the historical agency that Clark was challenging for um, with his pre-service teachers so that we can find a way to get into Fight Club 2. Students should be expected to discuss the depictions of, of violence in class, especially when the subject matter makes them uncomfortable, not go, move away from it because it does. So this is not to say that students should feel attacked by works that are included <coughs> on the syllabus. However, learning as opposed to memorization can occur more effectively when students are challenged to think critically about previous knowledge as they try to sort of rectify it or adjust it to incorporate these new perspectives being presented to them through transgressive, uncomfortable, and more often than not violent works. And this is an example of, of Palnick's head being exploded by being assassinated um, by his main character. So Fight Club 2 contains examples of all three of these violence, types of violence described by Van Zost and Bryant. So by combining the framework that differentiates individual, institutional, and structural cultural violence with Clark's search for historical agency in graphic novels, student reading, thinking about, and discussing Fight Club 2 will have the potential to engage with the fi fictional, satirical, and metaphysical implications of all three types of violence as they dissect and attempt to make meaning through the interplay of images and texts. The most obvious type of violence in both Fight Club and Fight Club 2 is the violence individuals experience by engaging in the fight clubs. So this will be the primary focus in analyzing both what many have found to be so objectionable and from which there is sort of the greatest potential to learn about what provokes violence and what it means in the context of the novel. So the film, or the novel, the film adaptation, and the graphic novel. The sequel opens with the previously unnamed narrator sort of taking the name Sebastian, and which was one of his names when he went to the support groups, and taking a healthy regimen of pills to keep him removed from both the fight clubs that he started with and from his um, alter eagle, Tyler Durden. So despite his efforts to leave this individual violence 
behind him, um, we see that Sebastian encounters other Fight Club disciples, much in the way that he does in the film, um, where they're working menial jobs like the florist that you see here. And so in one deft page reveal, this graphic novel is actually able to resituate the reader in the alternate reality that Palnick originally dis established with the graphic novel, and that we s can feel or, or sort of allude to Fincher's film as well. Um, so in the second panel, with a single line of dialogue, no charge, not for you, sir, it actually serves as a shorthand to recall how the narrator is increasingly unable to deny the appeal of violence and tries to control it through his highly regimented Fight Club concept. Palahniuk said, we all think history is us, but having this man realize that his is just a small sort of connective tissue between past and future, and that he really isn't doing anything but perpetuating a bunch um, of ideas that lead to something beyond his control. More than anything, graphic novels have the potential to condense information and experiences down. This concept of condensing also creates a shorthand reference that will be discussed a little bit later, but unlike violent film or an extended passage describing violent prose, in the graphic novel can tie together so many threads associated with the character's historical relationship with violence. Furthermore, it challenges the critical reader, especially when being guided through the process in the classroom by a faculty member, to connect the dots for the violence and its implicit issues. By distilling so much into a single image or a few panels, readers are left to explicate or unfold what they have encountered. The readers or students must try to consider what the image means and how the obvious violence experienced by the individual flower vendor is indicative of an ongoing history. From a historical agency standpoint, the image of the bruised and bladder, battered flower vendor that we see here succinctly provokes challenges of how marginalized groups are often treated passively as the victims in historical events instead of being described equally as actors. In the case of the vendor, although his position in society suggests he is marginalized, his participation in Fight Club makes him an actor of individual violence rather than a victim of it. The members of Fight Club, who will later become members of Project Mayhem, not only seek out involvement and volunteer to fight, but also inflict the same kind of individual and physical violence on, uh, in, on others. In the second chapter, Sebastian and Marla determine that their son has been kidnapped by Tyler. So. Um, Marla and Sebastian decide that the best way for him to reintegrate into this fight club is actually to take on this mask of physical violence. And he says sort of the catch line from the film, I want you to hit me as hard as, as, hard as you can, to which she does using the lid of the toilet's water tank to make him sort of unrecognizable as himself. So in the ensuing fight, um, what happens is Sebastian's face becomes so un unrecognizable that he can return to the still functioning headquarters of Project Mayhem on Paper Street. But perhaps the most disturbing reference to and departure from the original is the return and rematch that the main character has with the character Angel Face. Um, in both the novel and the film, it's one of the most sustained and relentless scenes of individual violence, and the narrator claims to be in the mood to destroy something beautiful. So he proceeds to pummel this fellow fight clubber's face to the point that his teeth break off and tear through his cheek, and it's really gruesome. Um, and in the film adaptation, Jared Leto is left gasping and spurting blood with shattered teeth that jut from his gums. 
Um, so in overstepping the boundaries of what's acceptable violence, the narrator actually becomes monstrous in this scene, signaling that um, the potential catharsis and camaraderie of the fight clubs has been corrupted, at least for the narrator. Um, who is supposed to be finding control in these fights. The graphic novel, on the other hand, um, has Sebastian suffering a similar fate, but at Angel Face's hands at, in this point. Um, where, to the point that Tyler actually has to take over Sebastian's body and fight back for him in the way that he's done throughout the, the original text. Um, so when Angel Face is first revealed in the text, they use this inset of the, the image of his teeth that matches almost exactly what we see in the film with Jared Leto. And then that's, that's done on purpose as a way to condense and, and uh, draw into the history and the identity that was created. So all these parallel narratives and references to individual violence from the original novel and film all seem to suggest that there's an, an inversion of the ideology relating to violence on the part of Sebastian. So for me, in the classroom, using a graphic novel like Fight Club 2 requires not only a reevaluation of the transgressive violence and the ideology behind it, but also how it is portrayed and how it has evolved from the original text to this graphic novel. Students will have to come to conclusions about what these shifts mean, why violence has been chosen as the form of transgression rather than sex or drugs, and how that violence can be a potentially fertile ground for this sort of discursive learning um, if only students, faculty, and administrators are willing to look beyond the initial shock value and offense of the individual violence that's perpetrated in the fight clubs. More than most graphic novels, which are inherently rich in their layers of text and images that seem to demand a close reading and analysis, um, the history, mythology, and significant impact on popular culture make Fight Club 2 a work that requires not only close attention to detail within the colorful pages, but a familiarity with the original source material from the novel and the film to truly understand and evaluate what violence means in the Fight Club universe. By initiating this type of intertextual analysis, students will be better situated to evaluate what violence means in the contemporary world, how it is critiqued, and how it has evolved since the novel's initial publication in 1996. So we will make the change now away from the really gruesome images to <laughs> more gruesome images. <laughs> Thank you, Chris. Higher education is obviously struggling with discussions about incendiary discourse. Just think about the recent uh, riots at UC Berkeley. Also, violent language, uh, recalling the language of trigger warnings. And an identity crisis about hypersensitivity in classrooms and on campuses, uh, such as the, I believe it was at Harvard, the Harvard Halloween kerfuffle. Um, Greg Lukianoff and Jonathan Haidt, in their now famous article featured in the September 2015 issue of The Atlantic, entitled The Coddling of the American Mind, here it is, um, address this worry about how a hypersensitive impulse could threaten academic freedom, or worse yet, promote or prolong the trigger warning culture. The article begins, quote, something strange is happening at America's colleges and universities. A movement is arising, undirected and driven largely by students, to scrub campuses clean of words, ideas, and subjects that might cause discomfort or give offense. 
They explain that unlike the political correctness of the 80s and 90s, which sought to be more inclusive, quote, this movement seeks to punish anyone who interferes with that aim, even accidentally. And you might call this impulse vindictive protectiveness, end quote. And it was actually our discussion of this article that prompted this panel uh, discussion. My comments today are a somewhat confessional, at times perhaps defensive, uh, but hopefully constructive reflection uh, on the importance and difficulty of addressing directly offensive, painful, or even violent content in the classroom, while also not deriding the decisions professors must make on a daily basis to be sensitive toward their students. To that end, I would first like to share some of my experiences as a student of literature. In particular, I want to highlight the profound impact certain incendiary texts had on me as a young reader of literary texts. To start, Afrobenz Orinoco, and you can see the image. Oops, oh no, that, that image is correct. Uh, this is a, an image by William Blake that is often included in uh, 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 critical editions of Orinoco. So to start, Afrobenz Orinoco, considered to be one of the earliest English novels, chronicles the capture, middle passage, and slave experience of its main titular character. The novel culminates in a slave rebellion that is led by Orinoco. The rebellion is scuttled, and Orinoco is first tortured mercilessly. Then he is disemboweled, dying a prolonged and grisly death. It is incredibly violent and hence really painful to read through this scene. However, Orinoco's story is on the one hand gory and tragic, but it is also a strong anti-slavery narrative. Next slide, Chris. Thank you. To cite some other examples, the rape and murder scenes in Anthony Burgess's Clockwork Orange and Margaret Atwood's Handmaid's Tale are incredibly effective, yet disturbing, episodes that showcase, in the case of the former, the dark and violent impulses of the diabolical Alex, and in the case of the latter, the socially sanctioned rape of of Fred, and by default, all of the other handmaids. These stories depict not only a sort of dystopic future possibility, but also the blind eye that humanity turns toward violence, its causes, and its victims on a regular basis. These reading experiences, while awful on the one hand, are transformative on the other. They foster empathy for the sufferer, the oppressed, and the victim. When I look back on these experiences, I am somewhat grateful that I received no trigger warning prior to encountering the violent material. The shock and horror of these scenes remains, remains with me to this day. I remember where I was and what I felt. Conversely, uh, I have wondered whether or not if my reading of these scenes would have been accompanied by a heightened sense of awareness if I had been offered a trigger warning. In other words, are trigger warnings solely for the sake of toning down the possible impact of a violent or disturbing text? Or do they also focus student reading to particularly important facets of a narrative? I do not necessarily offer an answer here, um, but I would like to assert that perhaps it is not so simple to be prescriptive about these quote unquote teachable moments. In particular, I want to highlight one reading experience I had as a graduate student. In the middle of my 20th century novel course, D.M. Thomas's The White Hotel was assigned. The novel chronicles a woman's experience as she is psychoanalyzed by Sigmund Freud. 
The reality and trauma of her World War II Holocaust experience remains obscured, although she strangely has a sort of premonition of what awaits for her. But it is only the end of the novel, it is only at the end of the novel that the reader comes to understand her fate. She is raped violently, so violently, in fact, that as I read the passage, I began to cry. I was sitting in an armchair on the third floor of the library at Duquesne. I was engrossed in the reading of this horrific passage, and I was simultaneously incredulous. I almost could not process the violence of what the text was making me envision. As I was struggling through this portion of the text, a friend and classmate approached me to just say hello and banter. When she got closer, she realized my emotional state. She then looked at the text in my hands and she immediately understood what was happening, having obviously read the text herself. She just said, I see you are reading that for the first time. And then she simply said something like, sorry. This moment stands out vividly in my memory as a transformative reading experience. There is the crisis of representing a hor horrific event like the Holocaust. There is truly no way to know it, to feel it, to empathize. As Marie-Laurie Ryan explains, the White Hotel presents the Babillard episode as a horror of such magnitude that it cannot be grasped by the imagination, end quote. However, through Thomas's novel, there is a way to sympathize, to at least try to somewhat envision the horror. I had no trigger warning for this. The shock was part of my reading experience, and without the shock, the violence of that rape scene would have been lost. Magalie Cornier-Michael gets at the significance of that textual, textual representation and the resulting response. And I quote, the graphic and very physical depiction of her death as a Jewish woman reinforces the novel's stance that social, political, and historical forces are vital determinants in an individual's material life, end quote. In this moment, with this text, I was grateful to have experienced the narrative simply through my own engagement with it. This brings one back to the crux of, if you could flip the screen there, Chris, the crux of Lukianoff and Hate's piece. Quote, rather than trying to protect students from words and ideas that they will inevitably encounter, colleges should do all they can to equip students to thrive in a world full of words and ideas that they cannot control. Uh, and that was my experience with the White Hotel text. Switching gears here somewhat, I have had these lessons as a teacher as well. I have regretted at moments providing a trigger warning, and I have regretted at other moments doing the exact opposite, not providing a simple preparatory comment for students so they can be prepared for a violent passage. For instance, I told students to be prepared for the birth scene in Stephen King's breathing method. In the midst of the final scene of the novella, the mother is decapitated while giving birth. It is really gruesome, and I wanted students to have some expectation. Interestingly, my trigger warning inspired nearly the entire class to complete the whole of the reading for the day, which, as a humorous <laughs> aside, may be an inadvertent argument for trigger warnings. Honestly, they may foster student reading. But the majority of the students indicated that they were disappointed to have known about the ending of King's breathing method ahead of time. If you could uh, switch the slide here. Uh, in another instance, Wilfred Owen's famous World War I trench poem, Dulce et Decorum Est, 
with its vivid imagery of a mustard gas attack, created difficulty for a student of mine who was an Iraq veteran suffering from PTSD. Owen's poem is so frequently taught in undergraduate English classes that it did not even occur to me that it could be problematic for my students who had experienced war. This poem created a lot of suffering for this student, and I truly regretted not pointing out the nature of the poem prior to assigning it. As I teach at a college with a large veteran population, I approach trench poetry and other literature with war as a central theme, such as the star-shaped hole of Tim O'Brien's story, The Things They Carried, with a bit more cautiousness. The teaching experience that remains the most surprising to me in this regard, though, is Art Spiegelman's Mouse. In fact, I credit this two-volume graphic novel with being a game-changer for me in so many ways. Since encountering this text, I have embarked on a journey into the world of graphic novels and comic books, and I remain so grateful for that. Furthermore, as a teacher of this particular text by Spiegelman, I was blown away by how it made a sustained discussion on diffi difficult elements of the Holocaust possible. Whereas the White Hotel evokes a visceral, visceral response that is akin to something like revulsion. And if you could uh, flip the screen here. Mouse allows the reader to process events by looking at them and looking at them and looking at them. It almost defies logic. The visual narrative should be just as painful, if not more so, as the text in a novel like The White Hotel. But the abstractions, the dream visions, the splash pages, and the renderings of the horrors of the Nazi era, while vivid in their own way, can somehow be sustained by the reader in this graphic format. As Christian Chun states, readers are able to better understand the horrors of the Holocaust through the complex humanity of the main characters in Mouse partly because of the artist's representation of his father and other Jews as comic book mice. This stylization enabled the artist to create an authentic narrative about an unimaginable genocide because the complex visual metaphors in this graphic novel act as a defamiliarizing device so that readers can understand this historical event in intimate, and this is my favorite part of the quote, in offhand ways. I think that's what's most valuable about Mouse. Um, you know, this uh, really, really difficult image here of Art Spiegelman trying to represent the Holocaust with uh, uh, the, the corpses below him. It's, it's surprising when you see it for the first time, um, and it really, really resonates. If you could flip it, Chris, thank you so much. And here are some more images from Mouse. I mean, really innovative uh, graphic images here. The barbed wire uh, stands out. It's a, a prominent symbol in the graphic novel. The uh, this is uh, the frame here on the bottom left is Art Spiegelman's parents trying to elude capture, um, but notice the road that they are traveling on is the shape of a swastika. So all of these innovative and offhand images that allow you to just uh, stick with the subject matter. I found that my students not only read the text voraciously, but wanted to talk about it at length. The paratext, or all of the material that envelops the graphic novel itself, like the cover art, uh, the renderings on the dust jacket, the expositionary art and text, make trigger warnings unnecessary, possibly even redundant. Students know what they are getting into, but it does not mean Spiegelman's graphic novel provides no surprises, no moments for realization. Hilary Shute clarifies that Spiegelman, quote, reconstructs history in his own language, comics, in frames and gutters, interpreting and interrupting as he rebuilds, end quote. 
In other words, the text is quite dark, violent in times, violent at times, and obviously taking on the trauma of internment for Holocaust survivors and their progeny. Ultimately, I want to offer that there is no easy way forward for a teacher when it comes to literary texts that push boundaries and challenge any reader's understanding of historical moments and contemporary realities. I am grateful for those narratives that have shocked me, both the textual and the visual varieties. I know, however, that focusing student reading can be useful and at times sensitive. I would offer that graphic novels are always another option, perhaps pairing up these readings that allow students to quote unquote see violence and suffering in various ways could be useful. The sustained character development of D.M. Thomas's The White Hotel achieves something important in terms of Holocaust storytelling and Spiegelman's Mouse does too, just in a very different format using, as Chung further elaborates, quote, multimodal text that features maps, photographs, detailed drawings, and a comic book short story within the graphic novel, end quote. The higher ed classroom should value both of these storytelling modes, and interestingly, both kinds of texts highlight the fact, as a result of their painful subject matter, the problem of trigger warnings uh, and vindictive, oh, sorry, uh, the, as a result of their painful subject matter, the problem of trigger warnings and vindictive protectiveness is in many ways uh, inherently irresolvable. At times, readers will be shocked by the horror, as they should, because that is where the realization and transformation is possible. In other instances, preparing students may actually provide the focus for their critical reading of a violent text. I do believe, however, that these decisions are clarified when professors reflect on their own readings of texts as students and their experiences of sharing painful texts with students, as well as a constant awareness of how students can optimally engage with the material.